I'm Joyce Hornady. You might say accuracy is my business. I make bullets. You are listening to the Hornady Podcast. Thanks for joining us and enjoy the show. Hello, everybody. Thanks for tuning back into the Hornady Podcast. I'm your host, Seth Swerzik. Thanks for tuning in on this one. I'm joined today right beside me, Judge Jerzinka. Welcome to the podcast. Hey, thank you. I'm excited about this one. This now, one, uh, before letting any cats out of the bag, it's right up my alley. It's right up your alley as uh, as we've collectively called you in the office uh, a whitetail elitist. Uh, you know, but all jokes aside, uh, mule deer, whitetail deer, axis deer, doesn't matter. Deer is what really makes the the clock go around. It makes the world go around here at Hornady. Obviously, there's a lot of hunting, but deer hunting, it all comes back to that's just so much involvement. So many people can do it. Uh, bars of entry are pretty low. And man, you want to talk about a passion. It it creeps up on you. Next thing you know, you're spending nine months out of your year daydreaming about opening morning. Yeah, I think it's it's more than nine months. Yeah, it, it, it's twenty four seven. Twenty four seven. Five. Yeah. yeah. Right. Well. Yeah. Big time. Without further ado, then let's welcome our special guest for the show, Dan Schmidt. Dan, thanks for coming on. Hey, thank thank you guys. Thanks for having me. This has uh, been a special day, and I'm I'm really glad to join you guys today. Yeah. So, Dan, you join us via Wisconsin, and you're working with. Uh, deer and deer hunting uh and we work with that brand hornady works with that brand but your knowledge and passion for deer goes way deeper than that and the education and like i said the knowledge and passion where it all comes together you end up with a fanatic absolutely that's uh, guilty as charged (laughs) there um it's been and uh I, i have to start off by saying Hornady has been with us with our TV show from the beginning. Uh, deer and deer hunting started the whitetail industry. I don't know if you guys know that. It did not. Uh, started as a stump sitters in 1973. Uh, stump sitters whitetail study group. It was the first whitetail specific organization in America. And then uh, they they just took log books from guys because they wanted to learn how to hunt uh, better. Better. Yeah. And the guys after uh, after three and a half years, they said, "Do we not get like a newsletter or something for giving you our ten bucks?" and they came up with a uh, newsletter, and uh, it would have been, first one came out in March of 1977, and they're sitting at the founder's kitchen table, and he said, what are we going to call this? I said, this was the first SEO research before SEO was even a thing. <laughs> he said, well, it's going to be about deer, and it's going to be about deer hunting. Why don't we call it deer and deer hunting? So um, th- that that's how it started. Uh, I'm going to give you a short, kind of long uh, back- right. background of my intro was, it would have been in April of 1981. I'm going to date myself here. I was in eighth grade at a Catholic grade school in south, southern Wisconsin, and our English teacher asked us to write a theme paper as to what we wanted to do when we grew up. Oh, boy. And I grew. I wrote, I wanted to be the editor of Deer and Deer Hunting Magazine. <laughs> so I, it took a long time. Uh, I went through college, went through journalism school, worked in newspapers for three and a half years, if anybody remembers what a newspaper is. Mm-hmm. Um, and I know you do, but... Um, yeah. <laughs> uh, and it took me a long time. I I got my foot in the door in 1994, and I've been there ever since. And I st- started at the ground level, worked my way up. But now um, we eventually, the corporation, it was Corporate America in New York City that actually owned it after a while. And we were just a small piece of that portfolio. That corporation went bankrupt in 2019. And uh, Brad Rucks, who's the president uh, of the company, I'm the vice president, uh, we rounded up other investors, bought the brand 
brought it back to its roots mm-hmm. and it's uh, our company's media 360 okay uh, and deer deer hunting is a flagship brand for that but uh, it's fed my passion almost my entire career how about uh, that and uh, I've just been a whitetail fanatic ever since I can remember and uh, for me it's been I grew up in a construction family my dad was a carpenter and he said, you don't have it so bad. You just get to talk about deer hunting all day long. Yep. I, you know that there's, there's other stresses involved in running a business, but th- th- in a nutshell, that's where, that's where my background came with, uh, just being all the way deeply seated in my psyche, all the way back to grade school. Yeah. That's, that's a pretty neat story. You set your sights high and delivered. I've achieved it and I now own a part of the company. Uh, it's very satisfying. What is nice about it is it was quote unquote, just a print magazine. Mm-hmm. Um, hundred thousand plus uh, circulation um it it set the bar in media for for whitetail hunting but now we've expanded the tv show like i said we're on pursuit channel uh we've also have three other television shows we've got numerous online videos uh numerous online series uh mm-hmm. steve bartell's grown big hunt em big I think, I think you're familiar with those. Yeah, we were talking about those earlier. I was a big Steve Bartilla fan and I still am, but yeah, he used to put out all kinds of content all the time and I, I really enjoyed his, his knowledge, but his delivery, I don't know, it just pulled me in. I enjoyed watching this. I've known Steve for a long time. He's been a contributor for a long time. He owns part of the company. Um, and it's basically what's nice about that. It's kind of the same thing that you guys have here at Hornady. You're all active shooters, whether Mm -hmm. you're a hunter or whether you're a shooter, uh, one way or the other, everybody who works for our, obviously our company is much smaller scaled. Sure. Um, but everybody has that passion, which really, uh, it doesn't matter if you're in the hunting industry, if you're in a, a career where everybody has that same passion, mm-hmm. it, 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 I know it sounds cliche, but it, 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 it isn't work. If you really worked like I did, and I know you guys did growing yeah. up, it's not work in the same amount of way. You don't get to the end of the day and hate your job you you love your job I and mean, you might get stressed out yeah right but um, at the difference. same time there's a huge difference when you know that you're doing something that other people find passionate um yeah and and you can see that in their eyes and it for me it'll be 29 years and it that that doesn't go away when yeah. i see other people who are that it, it just recharges you you're like yeah they're they're about as excited about this as i still am uh, and it shines through on, on your product Oh yeah. In in your world and our world, as far as our products, you know, everybody here for the majority is a hunter, is a shooter, want a better product for themselves. And that passion drives them towards that, which in translation is better product for everybody. I think it's genuine too. And I think people can see how genuine it really is when you're designing products that aren't just a me too kind of product. You know, we've, we've come out with some bullets like our ELDX bullet, for example. Just a phenomenal bullet, arguably the best bullet ever designed and manufactured. I mean, it does so many things so well. And then you've got other companies after we've released that that are just trying to play catch up. And I'm not sure that they would have pushed for that type of performance outside of, oh, well, Hornady's doing it. We got to get something like that too. You know, I think that genuine passion for innovation and product development spurred because we want to use the product. Right. We, we want a better product for you, but really kind of want a better product for me too. And you know, like they say, the, the chaff sorts out from the wheat. Yeah. Because I, I've seen that in our industry. I see it with your company. You know, you have uh, passionate people about it. Mean, I see it with like Matthew's Archery. Matt McPherson started that. And their slogan, I, you probably remember, is catch us if you can. Mm-hmm. Because mm-hmm. they were not only 
innovators, yet people are going to follow. Mm-hmm. People are going to copy you. But you keep pushing that. You keep pushing that. Um, that that drive the. Uh, you know, you're trying to achieve excellence. Mm-hmm. Um, and you kind of, you know, Ted Nugent taught me that over 25 years ago. He says, ignore your haters. And if somebody tries to copy you, it's kind of a compliment. Yeah. Um, and it does annoy you. I mean, if there are people that are trying to do that, but I think that is the tenant of, uh, of a good business yeah. in general, but especially like in our industry, um, it's something that's, you can be, wears a badge of honor. Yeah, exactly. Well, let's, let's talk a little bit about kind of your specialty, obviously on the journalism side, there's that, but when you've dedicated your life to deer hunting, you've had to pick up a thing or two about a thing or two regarding behavior and land management and food plots and all the things that go into, you know, a lot of us get infected with this hunting bug. And then next, you know, you're reading magazines about how to manage your land or, you know, what moon phase to be hunting in and does the moon matter anymore and how to hunt with the wind. And what have you learned over your last 30 years doing this This, that translates to? That's a great question. So uh, what, what, what I did, and this I think goes from my upbringing. I um, I was born uh, a Christian Catholic family, and my dad and you know my elders, they they beat it into my head, uh, and I don't mean it, that to sound derogatory, but they always say respect your elders and learn from your elders. And when I got into this industry, I didn't know hardly anything. You know, I mean, I was a passionate deer hunter. I loved it. But there was a couple men that um, I'd have to tip my hat to. Two of them already passed. Um, Leonard Lee Rue uh, III from New Jersey. He was the one who, he was the first deer behaviorist. Okay. It wasn't really a thing. He was a photographer, incredible photographer. Um, and most of those early issues of deer and deer hunting were all his photographs. But he learned deer behavior. Well, he passed that along to Charlie Alzheimer from New York. Charlie was the, he was a good friend of mine. He passed away in 2017. He was the preeminent deer behaviorist. He took what Lenny did and took, took it to another level. Because mm-hmm. what they did is they, obviously, they photographed deer in controlled environments. But they lived with the deer. And what they did, and uh, the stuff that you and I take for granted a lot of that is traced back to them. Mm-hmm. But then Deer and Deer Handling's um, forte was science-based research. So what they did back in the 70s, they actually were awarded uh, the top honor from the Wildlife Society. And that would have been, I think, about 1978 or 79. I would have to go back and look. But basically for bringing or popularizing science-based research. And it was all whitetail related. So everything we know about... I mean, buck to, uh, buck home ranges, doe home ranges, uh, doe fawning rates, um, how, how the environment, uh, uh, dictates that in certain areas, how the habitat dictates, uh, how, when you manipulate things, it's God's plan. It's like, you're going to do this. Well, here's a card, play that. Mm-hmm. And, and so basically all those things. And then the behavior and the biology, we were relying on people from the various universities. John Ozoga from, uh, well, he worked for Michigan DNR. Uh, st- still contributes a little bit to this day. He's he's well retired. Um, but what I did was I listened. And um, I think the biggest thing that anybody, a younger person could take away in any, like I say, in any occupation, don't be that youthfully arrogant punk oh, that yeah. thinks you know it all. 
because that guy who might be much more frail than you and a little bit white in the beard, uh, he's been through it. And, and, you, and you see those things. So what I did, and I actually wrote a book about it in, I believe it was 2005, I wrote a book called Whitetail Wisdom. And uh, the book was, oh, everybody says, uh, you're, you're being arrogant because this isn't my wisdom. This is, what I'm doing is I'm just regurgitating stuff guys have taught. Yeah, me. you're assembling a whole bunch of different people's wisdom into one form In of one work. form. Yep. And what I always told, um, I used to do speaking engagements and, and for especially young kids and hunters. Um, what, the first thing I would tell them is if you're in school, study as much math and science as you can because I didn't. Mm-hmm. You, you wouldn't have to be a journalist Journalist, because today <laughs> I don't know if you could make it as a journalist. Yeah, right. <laughs> um, and the other thing would be is to accumulate as much of that knowledge as possible. Yeah. And how it's helped me is, um, and this is, goes back to our founder, Jack Brower, a co-founder of, the, of Deer and Deer Hunting and the Stump Sitters, is Jack said, always try to learn something new. Uh, and here's another little, I'm going to go on a little sidebar, sidebar here. Um, so when they, these guys came up with this idea, they were trying to sell it. You know? So they, ha- they came up with this magazine, this beautiful magazine. That's when magazines were super popular. Magazine still is. Um, but they went to Fred Bear and uh, they were at uh, some kind of show. I don't know if it was, wasn't shot show. It was one of the shows. And Fred said, well, I don't think you got enough there. It's too vertical. It's too vertical of a market. You're going to run out of things to talk about. Jack said, well, no, we're going to, we're going to teach people everything. So today I say that like when you're out in the woods, if you want to become a better deer hunter, um, this is my long way of getting back to what I was trying yeah. to say. Jack said, um, always be questioning everything. So what I would do is like, you, sh- you live or shoot a deer. Okay. And up by us, a lot of times in, in, during gun season, especially we might have a little bit of snow. Mm-hmm. And I always, some of the things that would come to me is like, why is that liver blood like opaque maroonish colored as opposed to whatever? So then I would go as the editor, I would go to like, you know, Dr. Ditchkoff at Auburn University and say, why is it? And he goes, well, you know, they mineralize things in their liver, liver differently than in their bloodstream. And I'm like, oh, that's interesting. Yeah. But guess what that taught me? Next time I see that color blood. You know what you got. I didn't double lung them. Yep. Yeah. I didn't smoke them. You know, I, I, that bullet probably went through the liver. Now I'm like, oh, now I got to... From these other guys who taught me, you probably should back out and wait four or five, six hours. Yep. So for me, from the way I look at things is, I know I look at it a lot differently. Uh, a lot of other hunters might look at, well, I don't care about that stuff. I just want to kill a big buck. Yeah. Um, but for me, that teaches me more about deer. And in that particular instance, does that help me become a better buck hunter? No. But then where did that deer run when I shot him? Well, he just ran through two bedding areas. That... It's going to help me next year and yeah. the year after. So then when I started, and by no means am I a, I don't consider myself a trophy hunter. Sure. Big or small, I shoot them all. That's my, that's, yeah. my, that's my slogan. But what it has helped me is I'm very confident that I can know, I can assess a property um, and determine, is this a property that you could hunt a mature buck on? I mean, now today, obviously we've got trail cameras and we've got all this awesome technology that has way shortened that curve yeah um but it's stuff like that that has really i think helped define myself as a as a whitetail fanatic is always questioning the minutia mm-hmm. whether and, and a lot of it comes down to uh, a lot of it's behavior related um and charlie taught me that because he taught me if you can read a deer's behavior you can learn so much more about that 
topography than you'll ne- you would never learn. You always say, let the deer teach you how to hunt them. And that's what I always did was like, rather than thinking like, well, I'm going to, here's a trail and I'm going to go off of here and that's got to be the bedding area. He'd say, just absorb all that other information and try to use that to your best advantage. So now tech 30 years onto that and uh, very blessed to have hunted, I, I don't know how many states. I mean, 42 states have whitetail, huntable, whitetail populations, or I should say reportable whitetail hunt, hunting populations. I've probably hunted 30 of them. Wow. Um, so, and then when you do that, you're outside that little bubble of your mm-hmm. 20 acres at home in the Midwest or the Northeast or whatever. And it, it gives you that bird's eye uh, view of, of what might be going on mm-hmm. around, around you. Yeah. Well, and all of this knowledge, you know, as well as everybody else at deer and deer hunting, that shows through in the content, whether it's, yeah. a, you know, a, a published uh, magazine or on social, social media, media or on or TV. TV but, uh, how long has the TV show been TV aired? show is uh, 18 years, David, right? Uh, 19 years, sorry. Wow. We're, we're going on 19 wow. years. So, and Hornady was right there from the beginning. So uh, we, we very much, I mean, Hornady, Matthews, uh, we've, uh, Wildlife Research, we've had a 10 point, we've had some, I'm going to miss somebody, so don't box my ears. Um, it's, uh, it's been 19 years on television and we did hop around on some of those bigger networks. we landed with pursuit, uh, quite a while ago. And that has been a perfect partnership because, uh, the way I look at our partnership with pursuit is it's, it's, it's like this. We're, and I'm not saying it's, I got friends everywhere, but it's a really good mesh. Awesome. And, And we've got a two, two hour block. It's called Saturday night deer camp. Uh, we produce four television shows for that block. And then we do have, um, like you said, like you mentioned, all the there's all the online videos and and social media stuff and mm-hmm. stuff on our website. Well, deer and deer hunting TV is somewhat unique. I mean, is there another show similar to it? As far as you know, I watch that it's show all to aspects. learn. You know, yeah. there is a little bit of entertainment part, but it's I'm I'm watching to learn. That's stuff. what, and thank you. I'm I'm glad you say that because it 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 helps me. Uh, it reaffirms to me that these guys are doing their job. It, yeah. Because when we started the show, um, our slogan was the deer. I'm not the star of the show. Steve's not the star of the show. Mark Kaiser's not the star yeah. of the show. The deer are the star of the show. Yep. And, and I think the average hunter appreciates that. Speaking of the deer being the star of the show. So you mentioned the, the photography with the deer up close. Was that the video that's played during the show? The B-roll? Uh, of, of different deer in the snow. And, uh, yeah. There's always some now, really awesome shots. Now, of. David Galane, he's our executive producer today, and, and his team, they, they get a lot of that. The stuff that originated was from Charlie Alshimer. Yeah. Oh, wow. And Charlie had a 200-acre research facility. He didn't kill any of the deer. Some of those bucks that you see were 18, 19. He had them all eight named. There was Aaron, and there was uh, <laughs> his doe was named Carla after his wife. 18, 19-year-old deer. And he had those things, and it kind of shatters some people's perceptive perceptions. But he would have them trained like dolphins. He would he could shake a, a thing of corn, and he and he was old school man. He was sitting there with a with a Nikon thirty five millimeter camera, laying on the ground with his ball cap turned backwards. The fence is where you are, Seth, and a, a barbed wire fence. And he'd shake it, and then and here comes a deer, boom, and it basically jump right on top of him to, wow. to come there. But what he did is uh, he did, he researched browse preference. So oh. he, he would go out and get all sorts of different native browse species. His buddy, uh, Paul, I hope you're watching this, Paul, because this would be awesome for you. I, I know this is a, 
badge of honor. Paul was one of his best friends. But Paul worked for the highway department over there in Bath, New York, and they would cut down, you know, silver maple and whatever. Uh, uh, I'm trying to think of like beech and and all sorts of different berry brush. And they would they had these like little uh, things with C clamps, and they put that through the fence. And then Charlie would study what the deer ate at what different times of the year, and he oh. did some fascinating articles on. Wow, it. that's huge. Uh, and he did he did that, and he did uh, he, he did his lunar stu- study stuff. People tried to poo poo that, and the thing about I don't want to go off on a huge because we could talk all day on this, but yeah, his lunar stuff. People think ah, oh, the moon has nothing. It wasn't the moon. It was basic. It it was the moon, but it's way deeper and in depth than that. He had tens of tens of thousands of entry points on this, and it was the gravitational pull which. Fishermen know because they use it for their solar lunar tables of when fish are biting, but it was it was always based off of that second full moon after the autumnal equinox in September, and he didn't figure that out. The Native Americans figured that out hundreds, if not thousands, of years ago. That there was something to, and that's why they call it the harvest moon, the hunter's moon, all that stuff. There was something to the moon, and people in not wanting to process when I say the science because I don't get. I, it, it kind of blows my mind. It it has something to do with the gravitational pull at the... Now, is it going to be like 20 days difference? No. And any whitetail hunter knows that some years, that rut is really rocking like up by us. It's really rocking right around Halloween, you know, end of October. Other years, it's like November 7th or 10th. And it's like, why is that? So Charlie, he studied it with Wayne LaRoche. Wayne was the, uh, he was the game commissioner for Vermont, but he was a fisheries biologist. And that was his expertise. He went, Mm -hmm. that's what he went to school for. But Wayne said, I think there's some kind of connection. And Charlie says, I do too. We want to try to figure it out. But that's my long-winded way of saying, um, he, he not only had, his thirst for knowledge was unmatched by anybody I ever know. He just, he really loved whitetails. He wanted to know what made them tick. Not only, you know, you know the, the breeding stuff is cool because that's when we hunt. Yeah. But Charlie's thing too was like fawning dates, was um, overwinter habitat. I could get geeky for you guys if you <laughs> want me to. Overwinter habitat, and that was with the browse. So um, if nutrition levels are at a certain level, if it's bad in winter, you know, that the, the, the fawns, um, uh, condition when it's born is going to be different. And that all ties back to when it that thing was conceived. So there's dates there. So all that kind of stuff together wow. ties together into some fat, more fascinating thing. That's remarkable. Yeah. yeah it, it, the amount of science that goes into it is just blows my mind. Cause a lot of us grew up, I would assume in the exact same way where it's, Oh, it's hunting season. We're going hunting and you go out in the woods and sit in a tree stand or do whatever. And that's just what you do, but you have no idea any of this stuff's going on. And then you try to be a little bit more uh, educated and, and learn more. And, and, you know, in some people's case, you get a chance to really manicure a property to hunt. And it, there's so much to wrap your head around. The Hornady CX Copper Alloy Expanding Bullet. CX bullets feature the advanced heat shield tip that resists aerodynamic heating and provides a consistently high BC. Hard-hitting and deep-penetrating, CX bullets are constructed of rugged monolithic copper alloy that retains 95% or more of their original weight for devastating terminal performance. 
Available in factory-loaded ammunition as well as component bullets for reloaders. CX Bullets from Hornady. You know another good parallel, Seth? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to pull out one of your, your ammo boxes here because I learned this today. So me, being the average guy, see if I can get this open without killing your box. Uh, the average guy today, and that's me, pull that bullet out, I put it in my gun, boom, I shoot a deer with it, cool. And the, the uh, parallel I'm going to give you, my dad was a carpenter. Yeah. And he was very, very skilled. And he's still around, but he's retired. He's 88 years old. We would bust our butts in an old farmhouse, ripping out a window, and then they wanted a big bay window. And it took us, say, a whole week to figure out he'd have to get everything square, mm -hmm. get it in there. Okay, now you got it in there. Now you got to put the trim back on. And, and he, invariably, the, land, the, the homeowner would come in at the end of the week and like, huh, nice. Must have been a lot of work. And that's how it is with me with this, with this bullet. Boom, I shoot the deer with it, huh? Well, you guys just gave me a tour for like the last eight hours yeah. showing me how many processes went into making this bullet. Right. And it's the same thing with deer. It's like that deer walks out and it does what you think it's supposed to do and you shoot it. I don't want to say you got lucky, but it was like, you don't understand what just yeah. happened. Nope. I think a lot of us don't. You don't understand what it took, not only just why it did that, but how did that buck, who's now a 150-inch buck, grow and survive for the past four or five years to get to this point to now I'm just taking, ah, so, you know, he's got decent mass. He's got weak twos. Yeah. And it's like, well, do you know why he's got weak twos? He probably had bad nutrition last winter. Yeah. Or do you know why this happened? Or do you know, do you understand that this thing had to live, evade coyotes and black bears and wolves and whatever, whatever else for the past five years to get in front of you? That is like a, my, yeah. a, a mind blowing moment. Yeah, that is wild. The thing it makes me think of, and I don't know if this is relatable to deer on the antler growth side of things. I'm sure it is, maybe just not quite as noticeable. But when we were out in Utah, oh the elk, and they were talking about the elk. You know, on a on a wet spring, you know, the elk will have these long, you know, nice fronts on their on their antlers, or they'll finish and on then, their on and their then back in the forts. fall, you know, say it gets dry or not in the fall, but in the in the summer to late summer it gets dry. Well. The tops of their antlers, you know, their the the ends are shorter because you know just those different times of you know climate that they're dealing with and and what yeah. vegetation's around, water or whatnot. But like you know, the rack kind of changes throughout the year, and if it's wet the whole year long, well, they're gonna have you know they're, they're gonna finish nice and have those. I didn't even know that about elk. That well, I, I learned something. We don't know that either, but that's yeah. what we were talking with biologists out yeah. there. Yeah, and that's what he was kind of saying, and then. When we were there, I think it just so happened to be a, a late summer or a, or a wet summer, and it was getting later in the summer. So he was. They were all, all excited. Happy, yeah, uh, they're going to finish great. They're going to be that be is some big elk. That but. is that's fascinating. Yeah. The, the other thing we do, uh, we do a little series online. They 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 call it "Give me one white, random white tail fact of the day," and these guys will, like ambush me in my office when I'm not expecting. But um, some of the things kind of similar. Now that would be probably a, a environmental thing that you talk about. But some of the things that really fascinate me are, like I said, I'm a, I'm a Christian. I believe in everything the good book tells us. However, I do believe in evolution because we know through science and research that the whitetail evolved, which just blows my mind, and elk are the same way. They came up from a land bridge from South America, how 3,000, or no, it's more than 20,000 years ago. And when you, now you see all these, there's like 19 or, no, there's not. There's 32 different subspecies of whitetails. Wow. So from Canada all the way down to the little Florida Keys and stuff. But like in this area and west, now elk are different 
but the blacktails, um, they they migrated south. Hmm. Whitetails migrated north, and then mule deer are a result of that migration. Yeah, met in the middle. Right. But when you look at that, it was like these, now those were conditional factors over generations. And to me, that just more than reassures, like, I am a small, Charlie always said, you are a small link in an incredibly long chain. Yeah. And he said, try to figure out how that chain works and you're going to be a much happier person. That's what it does for me. Yeah. Well, I'm going to, I'm going to set up a hypothetical for you. We're going to put, uh, Knowledge to the test here a little bit. So, uh oh, I'm in trouble. <laughs> Nebraska, uh, that's where we're at. We've got a pretty diverse uh, opportunity to hunt here, in that you've got really rough canyon country up in the northwest. You've got these big sprawling sand hills. You've got traditional river bottom type places. So, for what I'm going to call us on the Great Plains, and then when you get into traditional Midwest and in the south where you're focused on whitetail deer, so you got September, October, November, December to hunt depending on the season and stuff. November, for us, our rifle season is generally right around the rut. So that's a no-brainer. Not super difficult to hunt deer. September, October, and December now, that can change the game a little bit. A little bit harder to figure things out. You know, you go hunting in November, deer are running amok. They don't care about nothing. Uh, And they're just running. It's crazy. But early season or really late season, I'm curious, with all that you've learned, Maybe break it down by month or by temperature range or however you want to, but like September, what are some of the things you've learned that help you be successful in that early season and that transitionary period in October, obviously the rut. And then in that late season, what are the, some of the things you focus on from a behavior standpoint? From a behavior standpoint and all, and, and you just, you said magical word, it's all transitions. Okay. And the transitions, okay, so your rut, at, and I do know that, is uh, mostly November rut, mm-hmm. right? So that, that one, you can basically take that and set that aside because you know pretty much how that's going to go. Mm-hmm. But the transitions uh, are, I'm going to give you three layers to transitions. The biggest one that most guys will understand, and I'm not saying you can't understand all of them, but they get a little bit more tricky, are the, the food transitions. So out here, you have a lot of egg. Mm-hmm. You know, you probably don't, you have some mass, but not a lot. I'm sure you've got... There's probably some, uh, I don't know what, you probably have some oaks yep. and, and things yeah. like that. And people, that's the big thing for deer hunters is in the South, it's way different. South, they've got like way many different species of white oaks and red oaks. And when those things are dropping, they've got soft mass, which is persimmons and all the, in grapes and stuff like that. Up by us, we have apples. That's, that's a transition. So for the early season hunter, those food transitions, whether it's going from, uh, you know, alfalfa or soybeans to whatever, if it's rye or if it's whatever else the, the farmer has planted, or if you've got food plots, those transitions are fairly easy for a hunter to figure out. Okay. Um, as far as if you want to be successful, uh, from a food transition, that would be early season. You get to late season, December, he who has the food has the deer. So it's like, if you've got, if you're not supplementing it, then you're beholden to what does this land have is there leftover egg um most of the times there are um and then you've got to figure out what's and that's basically just good scouting you know Mm -hmm. you can do that off of cameras or, or even observations um the other transitions are much more uh subtle and but once you figure them out it's pretty fascinating so 
bear with me here because I'm going to get geeky. There's two things, uh, life in the male society, life in the female society. With whitetails, no matter where you hunt in North America, um, they live in uh, segregated groups for, for the most part. Now, those, those bucks and does will obviously interact with each other, and the rut's going to be a much easier time to do that. But I'll start with the doe society is white-tailed does, and this, is, this does not apply to mule deer, it's different. White-tailed does live in maternally linked groups. So what we know is, and we always say in square miles to try to make it uh, easier to understand, but when I say a square mile, it's not necessarily a square mile. Right. It's approximately 640 acres is approximately a buck and a doe's home range. So for, the, for, the mo- for all things being equal, for the most part of the year, if there's 640 acres of good habitat, whether that's a square or whether it's a long river bottom or it's snakes or whatever, it's a chain, for the most part, they're going to stick within that. We know, especially out here, bucks will travel four, five, ten miles during the rut. Mm-hmm. That's that. Like I said, you can't count that. But as a deer gets older, let me let me let me stick to the the females. When I say maternally linked groups, we're like if you took circles and drew them on a on a map. Those does are going to live in those. So you say, I saw 10 does. Well, those 10 does are, for all intents and purposes, related. Mm-hmm. And um, across that habitat, you're going to have aunts and nieces and great aunts and great grandmas of does living together. But how they, how they segregate themselves is no different than people living in a big city. So the oldest mature does that are the best mother, mothers get the high rent spots. They get the okay. good spots. The, the, the lower age class deer, especially when we fracture those systems by, by heavy doe harvests. So if you have yearling, yearling, which is 18 month old does and younger two and a half year old does, they're going to get the low rent areas. So they're going to get the really marginal habitat. So if you're looking at um, in September, for example, and you're seeing a lot of yearling does, that should be indicating to you that this is a low rent area of the habitat for some reason. Okay. And, and that's how these deer are going to, that, that's how that transition goes for the food sources. Now, I'm not saying it's, that's not 100% because they move. Now, let's switch. I could, like I said, I could talk for days. Yeah. Up. To the buck segment, uh, a little bit different. Uh, so the doe, when she, as she gets older, that, that home range shrinks to, let's just say approximately, approximately, depends upon where you live. If you're far west, not quite applicable. Here depends on your habitat. Midwest, northeast, east, southeast, hundred percent applicable. Um, the bucks, as they get older, that home range shrinks even more, and that's why you see these guys like Lee Lakoski, um, Pat Reeve, some of these guys that are just growing giant bucks in Iowa. And like he's only got four hundred acres, mm-hmm. but they get deer to four, five, six, seven years old. That buck knows where he's safe, where he's got cover, he's got breeding uh, opportunities, and that could be a very small home range of 80 to 100 acres. Mm-hmm. So now get going to your point, how do I hunt that deer in early season? Let's just, now we're talking bucks because everybody likes to hunt big bucks. Um, that big buck, as we know, you get to bow season, your odds pretty good, right? So you got a camera out there, you've been getting them in your food plot or wherever, regularly you better make hay pretty quick because as we know if you don't 
You're not going to see him. And you're going to think, oh, man, that buck disappeared. He didn't disappear. He knows, exa- he knows every blade of grass in that core area of his home range. But now he's transitioning. He's transitioning from basically late summer behavior, late summer um, uh, home range, uh, it's not dispersal, home range occupation, to the rut where now he's feeling his oats. He's that 22-year-old guy hitting all the bars, Mm -hmm. wanting to get the prettiest girl. That all ends. We get to late season. We get to December. How do I hunt that deer? Number one, food. Number two, I, I, I should know his core range of his home range. And if I do, that's where my stands have already been set up six months ago. And then um, you try to catch them in between transition areas. And that's the hardest thing for most people to understand is that they just want to put that stand. I'm on the food pot. I'm going to see deer. Got to get off there. And not the main trails. I call them the tertiary trails. You yeah. want to get on those, those little travel corridors. Coming two bedding or two bedding, two feeding or one way or one way or the other, mm-hmm. and trying to get them there, and that's where that mental mind game comes into. I hope that oh, answers yeah. your yeah. question. It does. Do you play into the previous year's history? You know, trail camera history. Do you? Yes, pl- yes, absolutely. Because that, yeah. that really helps you hone. Steve taught me this. He's a master at it. Because let's face it, I I'll shoot the first good buck I see. I don't yeah. care. It doesn't matter to me. Guilty, it's, guilty here. Yeah, it, yeah. It, seriously, no, it seriously doesn't matter to me. But Steve uses that intel like, okay, now I'm really honing in what I think is the core of his home, of his preferred home range during fall. And that's where that comes into play. Yeah. And that's the things where you should be taking notes. Um, and guys are really good. There's guys out there, like I said, they want it way more than I do. They get really geeked, and that's it's awesome. That's what makes it so fun. Mm-hmm. But to me, it's, it gets to be, been doing it for so long. It's like, yeah, I find it cool, but I still want to just enjoy the hunt. Absolutely. But to answer your question, yes. I mean, that's where that last year's um, intel is going to help you, and especially if you're one of these people who's blessed to be able to hunt a property like that, that you can actually tr- uh, track a buck. Yeah. Um, the next year's should be even better. And guess what? Uh, deer are a lot like turkeys. There's a definite pecking order. So I don't know if you guys ever, you the one you raised on a farm with chickens. Oh yeah. Yeah. You kill a rooster, you kill a tur- wild turkey, there's another one to come in and take sure. their place. And that's the same thing with deer. So you figured out that buck and it's like, oh man, you know, my neighbor killed him. You know, crap, I've been trailing this thing for four years or e- three years. But it's like, no, you just figured out what he was doing but now there's gonna be another one that's gonna take his place, and I can almost guarantee you those those habits are gonna be very very similar. Interesting. Very very similar. This has me thinking about something that I heard on on another podcast that I listened to, and I'm by no means anywhere near this level. But it was a was a land manager who's got a piece of property that he's managed for 30 years, and he's got it dialed in to the point where you know he's got the genetics on his farm that he wants to try to keep any new young buck, button buck, you know, he wants to keep it there because it potentially has genetics of, you know, what he's trying to chase, big antlers. And he talked about how does, you know, will potentially, they run their bucks off, you know, their fawns, their buck fawns. He thought that maybe, you know, they run those bucks off. So kind of breeding wise, you know, through nature, it pushes that buck out to a different area. So he 
had two does, I think, this last fall. Or or maybe they had, he had, yeah, this last fall, he had two does that had twin buck fawns. And he was targeting those does to keep those bucks on his farm. Is is there something like that? Well, I don't. I, don't, I was just curious I, I, on your take. I, 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 I heard, don't. I heard, I heard that, and I, I've I never get, thought about I that before. I could spend the rest of the week talking about this. Um, okay, so let me first say his approach isn't a thousand percent wrong. Um, there are studies that show an orphan buck fawn will stick closer to his home range for a year and a half. Mm. Well, a year and a half, he's like this. Mm-hmm. After that, he's gone. Mm. He he will disperse. Number one. So you're not going to keep that buck around. The odds of you keeping around until he's four or five years old are very, very small. Um, the other thing about that is, how do I tackle this? Um, in a lot of the scientific studies, the genetics up to 60% or more is related to the doe. Doe, I've heard that. Um, so the buck, the buck genetics is, is, is not really a thing. Yeah. It's, not, it's not like... Well, it's not like it's it's the same with cows, and you, you guys are in beef country. That's a that's a lineage that yeah. you know it, it it's it, every bit as much as the female is the male. Um, also, depending upon where you live, and this has this comes down to age structure and um, sex sexual dimorphism, which is how many females versus males on the landscape. A preponderance, or I shouldn't say a preponderance. A percentage, which could be up to 25 or 30 percent, of newborn buck fawns were sired by buck fawns. Hmm. So, or yearling bucks. So, you have people think the, the common thinking was, I want this big, mature four or five year old buck doing all the breeding. Well, he's got the same genetics as that little six month old yeah. buck fawn. Sorry to tell you, but he does. Mm-hmm. And it's not the same. Like, mule deer are more of a harem animal. Uh, white tails, that mature buck, I don't know, you see a breeding party, we call it. Um, there's a buck chasing this doe and running a ragged during the rut. He breeds her. He gets his eye off her for five minutes and chases another buck out of there. Yearling buck comes in, breeds her. There is a, a high preponderance of multiple paternity in white tails. So when you have a, uh, a white tail that has twins, there's a high percentage that those twins have two different fathers. Interesting. So, so to try to manage that on a wild, free-ranging herd is next to impossible. Oh, yeah. So I would say, I mean, like I said, no offense to your friend. Like I said, what he's doing, yes, there's validity to if you orphan a buck fawn, he will stick closer. He's not going to, I'm not going to say not always. The chance of him, him being there when he's to the size where that guy wants to shoot him are going to be small. Yeah. Or the neighbor's going to kill him. Yeah. Um, yeah. You know. Of course. The, well, yeah. the best thing you can do if you want to manage deer is keep your population at a level below carrying capacity, which again, for all intents and purposes, no matter where you live is, is less than 35 deer per square mile, which is not a lot of deer. No. I always say when people figure out what 35 deer per square mile is, they think you killed every deer in the world. Um, number That's number one. Number two is really working on your habitat. So if you can do that through Depending upon how much land you own, I don't. I own nine acres, but I mean, I've helped people manage land. But if you have a big chunk of land that's uh, forest management, that could be burning, uh, that could be uh, vegetation control as far as getting rid of uh, non-native species. It could be planting food plots. But when you're planting food plots, if you want to do it from a uh, a habitat perspective, it's not measured in half acres and quarter acres. It's yeah. measured in because a, a quarter acre food plot is a Snickers bar for a, yeah. a deer herd. It's you. You need 
And if you don't have that, fine, but there could be other ways of, of doing it. If you've got farm crops and you could leave 20 acres of standing corn or soybeans, that's going to yeah. actually help the deer. I was going to say it. Uh, my brother-in-law had brought this up. This is years ago, but s- some of the best things that he thought you could do for uh, land to or food plots was to let ryegrass get to five foot tall and never cut it down. Yeah. And yeah. just give them a place to live once that's the crops not, come that's out. That's actually not a bad idea. Yeah. It's actually not a bad idea at all. That's so. interesting. I've learned so much in the time that we've been talking. <laughs> uh, I do want to transition though, because we could go on. Obviously, Absolutely, your yeah. depth of knowledge on this is incredible. And we have to have you back on the podcast for sure. Absolutely. When we get closer to whitetail season, we could do a whitetail month or yeah. something based on this. Because <laughs> I know Judd's chomping at the bit. Judd's got a, a little section that he... Uh, gets to hunt and has spent a lot of time and effort in that place, and and I know he takes it very serious. But I want to transition to uh, rifle hunting because that's I mean shotgun, muzzleloader, rifle. Uh, but rifles a lion's share of what we see as of whitetail hunters certainly here uh, and and to the east of us. So from your viewpoint, we talked about it before we started recording. Uh, you've got a, a rifle in your hands. You've got a deer. What are you thinking as far as shot placement goes? And, and maybe before you get there, what are you looking for for a cartridge selection? Because it's not that hard to kill an animal of that size with the appropriate bullet and cartridge combination. But uh, what's your opinion on sure, that? Sure. No, it's a good, a good question and a loaded question for me. Number one, to dress on the thing, um, I'm a big bow hunter. Yeah. And I know a lot of people in the industry, that's all they care about is bow hunting or crossbow hunting. Um, gun hunting is the big hammer for, for whitetails in America. And without gun hunters and gun hunting opportunities, we would not get to do this. So um, if you are, well, anybody listening to this podcast is I'm sure a gun hunter, but yep. um, you are, I think people should not be divisive in the fact that you hunt with a bow, you shouldn't be able to hunt with a crowd. We're all in this together. Embrace yeah. it and embrace anything your state comes down with. If they're coming down with extra muzzleloader seasons or a straight wall cartridge season or whatever crossbow during archery crossbow during one. archery um i support it all yeah i support it all and my theory on that is if i was king which i never want to be but if i was king of the white tail world in america i would make all states implement this is deer season okay you tell me what the parameters are september 1st to december 31st no we don't want that october 1st to january 1st, whatever it happens to be that's your season. Here your tags. Knock yourself out. Do whatever you want. That's what I would say. I wouldn't care when you went bow hunting or gun hunting. That's what I would do. So yeah. I, well, to jump in there on a, a quick tangent, uh, you're talking about some of the divisiveness as far as gun hunting goes. I think one thing that's often overlooked is, as members of society in these civilized areas, we have an obligation to keep deer numbers at a certain level because if we don't. They'll do it themselves, and it's not usually pretty. And it's not going to be pretty. The right. deer have to die. Mm-hmm. Ted Nugent, that's Ted's quote. I'm going to give him. The deer have to die. Right. But to answer your question, yeah. um, whitetail's out there. I'm gun hunting. Um, what do I want to do for shot placement? For me, it all depends on my situation. So if I'm at home, I'm hunting nine acres at home or 20 acres at home. Back home, if you have 40 acres, you're a big landowner. If you have 100 acres, you're a really big landowner. And there's a lot of other landowners. So if, when I talk about that magical square mile for deer, hab, uh, for deer uh, population, that square mile could literally have three or 400 landowners. Jeez. 
So what I'm doing as a gun hunter in that situation is I'm, in, I'm aiming for the brachial plexus. I'm aiming for the center of the shoulder blade because unless I know my neighbors and they say, yeah, we, if you shoot a deer, you don't even have to ask. Go get it. Most places of, you know, Wisconsin or Michigan or Pennsylvania or New York or Georgia or Alabama, the big one, the big populated deer hunting states, mm-hmm. um, you know how people are. They're very protective. So you, sure. can, you can't trail. So one thing I know through deer anatomy, if I can center punch that, uh, we call it the high shoulder shot, yep. I'm anchoring that deer right there. Am I blowing out shoulders and, and losing maybe, maybe six to eight pounds of meat, even if I blow out both shoulders? So be it. I'll shoot another deer. Yeah. Uh, that's, that's my, uh, my shot placement of choice. If I'm hunting and I don't have to worry about that, I'm aiming just like what I would for a bow. Right behind the shoulder. Right behind the shoulder, right through both lungs, preferably through the ribs. I'm not blowing a lot out of there. Uh, for bullet choice, I've used your guys' stuff, obviously for the TV show, for, for 19 years. Um, it, it's I've used some of the copper loads. I've used these things. It, the, the bullets got to have that. Um, and I know you guys do it, and you guys can re, re, refresh my memory on the technology. But that bullet that's got the, the basically the delayed expansion, um, it's staying intact. The, the weight retention is there. Yep. Because when I drive that into one of those shoulders, if that thing blows apart, oofta. Yeah. You know, I mean, I'm, I've got, I, it, whether I'm doing it or my buddy who's a retired butcher is doing it, and now we're, we're picking stuff out of the meat and I don't want to grind it because I'm going to wreck my grinders. Um, things like that. But just from a humane pr- perspective, I want a bullet that's going to, number one, be accurate. Yeah. And I do that with, um, um, since you guys came up with these polymer tip bullets. Yeah, the SST, the ELDX, the CX, for example. No, I've shot them. Th- those I shot particularly out of my 20-gauge uh, slug gun. Mm-hmm. Um, and my, I actually had a 12-gauge too. I, I had a 12, I switched to a 20. Um, and my muzzle loaders. Um, th- those were game changers for me. Yeah. Um, and those, most of those, most of those shots with slug guns and muzzle loaders were through the, the ribs, bo- okay. boiler room shots. But what I liked about that was, um, and I'm not naming any other ammunition companies, but I've shot some of the, sm- the smaller caliber ones. Sure. And I didn't have blood trails. For- they were horrible. And, okay. and it, it, that, that's a pit in your stomach when you shoot yeah. a deer with a gun especially a slug gun and I'm on my hands and knees looking for blood, not a good sign. Nope. Um, for, a, for a rifle, I'm not, I, I grew up in the upper Midwest, so I'm not a, I've made some longer shots, but for me, it's all about that bullet design. And, um, for most of my rifle hunting has been anchoring that deer on the spot. Yeah. Right through uh, the shoulder. And like I said, I think we we're talking off air about this, but the biggest thing for any deer hunter to get, if you're not, really maybe experienced with it um archery equipment and i include all archery I, uh, recurves compound bows crossbows that kills via hemorrhaging that's like i'm a i'm actually on blood thinner so if, if i cut myself shaving i bleed like a stuck pig it just bleed bleed bleed, bleed. that's what you want in archery equipment right that it's going to cut immediately that deer is going to bleed out quickly and it's going to fall within well we already know that so a deer's got to lose here's another geeky uh, thing for you a deer's got to lose uh, about 30% of its blood volume before it collapses um, from archery uh, hmm. wound. And that's like about th- three of these. Okay. Um, but they said, well, I didn't find that much blood on the ground. Well, it's internal. Like, right. So it's bleeding like crazy. With a bullet, as you guys know, it's completely different. 
a bullet kills via shock in hemorrhaging, but the shock is, whoosh, you know, you, you hit that in and I think you see it with your ballistic gel. Yeah. So when you shoot, I keep talking about that, that shoulder blade shot. When you shoot in there, my goodness, that's, it's trauma. Yeah, it is. Like I said, you're peeling off a whole shoulder. You might be throwing it away. Um, you, you shoot them through the lungs. It's going to have that big, uh, temporary wound cavity. Yep. And, and, and you will be losing that, that, that meat, but that's what I want to happen because I know that he's down. Whether, whether he falls, like if I hit, if I center punch that brachial plex, it's that big nerve bundle that's all coming in right in here. It's going to happen to you too. If I did it to you, you're going to fall. Any animals like that, it's going to, it's like that central, I call it the boiler. Uh, it's like you turned off your, your furnace and like now, yeah. boom, he's down. If I don't, and I come close to it, that wound channel is still big enough that's going to disrupt it. And we see that from spine shots. Yep. Like um, if you hit a spine shot, you might not actually be severing that spinal cord, which is only that big. But let's say my bullet, okay, so that's the spinal cord. The spinal column is here. And that bullet hits one of those fins below that and whoof, he goes down. Same thing. Yeah. So it's, that's what I'm looking for in my bullet. My yep. bullet's got to have that shock and off factor. Absolutely. Um, so, and I know you can tell me why that happens. Yeah. Because I don't know why it happens. Sure. I mean, as far as how those things are loaded, the design of the bullet, how it reacts. Yeah. Well, right a lot it. of that does come down to the design of the bullet. You get that, uh, that expansion, that rapid expansion. And I say rapid, not to say that the bullet's coming apart. Because uh, there's mechanical means often to hold that bullet together. But you get that violent expansion. It's transferring energy. And particularly in the high shoulder shot, when you get that, that boom, light switch, animal falls right away. You disrupt the central nervous system electrical activity. Uh, so it goes unconscious, which appears like it's dead. Now, there is a difference, uh, clinical death and brain right. death. So it appears dead. Technically, it, dil it does still have to die via lack of oxygenated blood to the brain, but it will die from the same mechanism of a, uh, as, as an archery shot. It's just the lack of oxygenated blood, but it loses consciousness much quicker, which for all intents and purposes is as good as dead because if, if it's unconscious and can't move and bleeding out at such an incredible rate, um, the, the exception to that would be like elk, for example. You've seen elk get walloped shut the central nerve or not shut it off, but you know, flash it. They lose consciousness. They hit the ground, but they're such a robust animal with so much blood volume. They can actually get back up. And then and, that's a difficult. Yeah. Job. But on a deer size game, you put one through the shoulder, disrupt that central nervous system, the electrical activity, you can shut them off. They're unconscious until they're technically brain. Until dead. they're dead. Or the other thing too, that I like, I don't like to take chances, whether it's a bow or a gun. Um, that deer goes down. I say, shoot it again. Oh, you know, yeah. shoot, shoot again. Put it, put one through the lungs, or or stay on it until you get mm -hmm. up there. And uh, that that's always a, I think, a, a fail safe way of. of oh, working. sure, but that that methodology is, yeah, for states that have traditionally smaller tracts of land, like you mentioned, Pennsylvania, which has historically got a lot of hunters, smaller yeah. smaller tracts, a lot of hunters. It happens out west. My dad and I were out west uh, in western Nebraska, uh, hunting in the sand hills, hunting on a public property thousands of acres and the shot opportunity 451 yards i mean you could almost spit across the fence line into private property i wasn't that close it was another 25 or 30 yards to the fence line but you got one shot and old man you better put it through make his it shoulder count. you gotta make and, it count and yeah. yeah you put one 
squarely through the shoulder and the deer dropped right where he stood. And uh, I know it's controversial with some people. Some people get all over me on that. Sure. They're like, well, that's, that's not responsible. I'm like, you have to make that decision in, oh, the, sure. in the heat of the moment. I can't, and of course I can't sit here from a table and say, your situation should dictate this, but that's something that you think about. Yeah. And I think as a hunter, if you go in there with that in the back of your mind, you're going to be able to make a much more ethical decision. I think so. Well, and yeah, there's, there's a lot that goes into it, the ethics. And then, you know, I'd rather, like you mentioned, I'd rather feed six pounds of bloodshot meat to my dog than have him <laughs> jump that fence into thousands of acres of private property where the landowner lives in you know, three states away, and I have no idea how we're going to figure this out. Rather, anchor I don't know how it spot. works here, but where I'm from in Wisconsin, Minnesota's different. Um, you can't trespass, and you cannot claim ignorance. You have to know where the the lines are. Oh yeah, you can't say, "Oh well, I thought not nope, wrong story." And that's it used to be a felony. It's not anymore. We used to have it used to be felony. Wow, for trespassing. It's not anymore, but still, I'm not taking that chance. Yeah. I'm not 100%. taking that chance because you know how people spend money for land these days. I won't want it. I won't want people traipsing all over my land. Not not interested um, in that. So that that is a I I know it's a controversial thing, but also it's uh, um, but if you're if it's a if all things are perfect, yeah, heck yeah, right right behind right the through shoulder. the lungs, make it perfect, right through the yeah. lungs. And I think like well, we could take a pencil and probably kill no, but I mean it's like the the uh, these the physics is going to be much cleaner that way sure yep out here you may only get one chance so never compromise at any distance match accurate eldx bullets highest bcs flat trajectories and unparalleled terminal performance at all practical ranges Precision Hunter Ammunition from Hornady. I'd like to tr transition one last time here. I've got another question for you for the end of the podcast. Okay. But, uh, we talked about the smaller tracts of land in states, you know, eastern Nebraska, uh, a lot of the eastern states, uh, places like where Judd gets to hunt, for example. He's got this, you know, it's, it's not huge property, but he spent a lot of time manicuring it. If you're going to, if you get access onto private property and you've got this relatively small chunk let's say less than what did you say less than 80 acres well yeah the chunk that i get well, to hunt is, is a is a little different yeah. i was just trying to bring up if you've got say less than 80 acres what are some things that you would do from a food plot standpoint and from a land management standpoint that you think would help the 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 hunter and everybody wants to shoot a big rack but let's let's transition away from antler size and say a deer that's reached four to five years old, you know, okay. to find a deer in some of the parts of the country that have reached that level of maturity is really tough to do because a lot of three and a half year old bucks get killed. So if you're hunting on a smaller piece, what are some things that you can do from a food plot and land management standpoint that you think will help you see more or retain more of those animals? Of that those older cl age class animals? Yeah. Okay. This is the one that I, I don't or more like. animals in general. Well, there's two, that's two answers. I'll, 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 I'll address it from, because it, let's, like you said, let's face it, everybody wants to shoot a big buck, right? Sure. So that one I, I grapple with internally a lot because to do that, um, let's just use that 80 acre perspective. So I already told you how deer live on the landscape from a male and yeah. female perspective. Yep. If, if I am from those 
that's my goal is to kill a four or five year old buck minimum. And what can I do to the land? Number one, the access is going to have to be highly, really limited. Okay. Um, Just people presence. One or two guys. That's it. Yep. One or two hunters, and that's it. That if that's what if that's what your goal is, um, you really have to pick and choose how you hunt it and when you hunt it. So less is more. So that goes to this whole scouting thing, and to only hunting a stand when it's perfect. And that and like on an eighty acre parcel. If I, if I was doing it just, and I don't do that, these guys can attest to it. I don't do it that way. But if I was doing it, I would have at least a dozen, if not more stand sites, at wow. least for every possible wind direction. Mm-hmm. And I am not hunting that stand unless it's, I don't care. I use all the products. I use all the, the scent killer sprays and, and soaps and everything. And they work great. Yep. I even, I even use the mock scrapes and stuff like that. But we are constantly emitting scent, and a buck that of that age, of four years old, four and a half years old, he's mature. He he will he will figure it out like you will not believe so fast that you're trying to hunt him. So, um, if I'm doing that, my when I hunt, uh, and what stands I use is going to be very very well thought out. Um, from a food perspective, uh, uh, the second thing is I'm not if I'm hunting for a big buck. I'm doing doe management, but I have to figure out, that's something I'm going to have to figure out how many does I'm taking off of that. And in that scenario, I'm not killing does until the very last part of the season, probably during gun season. Um, I hopefully have already shot my buck by then. Um, And that's where I'm doing my doe management. I'm not doing my doe management early. I will not be doing it if I'm hunting for a mature buck. Because once you do that, number one, if you have a really good mother, um, that's the doe you want around during the rut. So I'm not killing her in September. I am a hypocrite that way because where I hunt, I will kill the first big doe I see. <laughs> She's going in the freezer always, so but I don't normally do this. Um, the other thing I'm doing from a food perspective, um, this one I've changed my thoughts on over the years because back in the day, it's like I'm packing as much food on that 80 acres as possible because as Steve says, you want those deer to spend a disproportionate amount of time on your ground. So if you only have 80 acres... You, you're trying to put everything on, you're putting everything on that coffee table. You're putting Doritos and deer sausage yeah. and snack sticks and, and, yeah. and you're watching a football game. That's what you're trying to do on that 80 acres. I won't do that anymore. What I will do is there's going to be very good variety and it's going to be spaced out to get the deer to move through that property. So on my little property that I have now, I've planted um, hazelnuts and I've planted apple orchards and I've got food plots, but they were so staggered throughout that property that my my goal in that situation is to have, in a perfect year, food coming into uh, ripeness throughout the hunting season. Oh, so yeah. that it's going to give those deer more reasons why they want to come through my property. So that's what I'd be doing. So I'd be looking at that as like a, almost like a battle map. Like yeah. uh, what I want to do is I know the neighbors have a good bedding area here and this neighbor might have a swamp that nobody gets to hunt. So I want them going from there to here, coming through my property and spending as much time on me. Yeah. As opposed to, oh, I got a five acre field. I'm going to plant it. Well, yeah, you can do that. There's nothing wrong with it. The other thing I should mention about food, which is really difficult. We just did a video on this yesterday at, at a property that we did for deer and deer hunting uh, properties is uh, really hard to do this. This guy had three food plots of probably three acres or more on his, uh, he had a big property, but he, beautiful, former egg fields. And he planted them all in soybeans. 
And he goes, yeah, there's deer like crazy. I'm like, I would be taking some of these and having them completely as destination plots and never hunting over them. Maybe during gun season. That, that would be my exception. If I'm hunting during gun season, I'd hunt them. I would never yeah. touch them during bow season because, like I said, I want those deer spending a disproportionate amount of time on that land. I want them coming in there, feeling safe, eating, never getting any human pressure there, and then going back into their bedding areas and then trying to hunt them around the fringe areas hmm. if I can get in there with, with, with the wind. And I think if you do that, it totally goes against what you're thinking because most people, and granted, and that's why I don't do it because even as much as I get to do this, I'm like, I don't want to stress this much. I just want to go out and enjoy it. Yeah, and enjoy the hunt for sure. And especially if you're if you're saying it's just me or somebody else, well, I want to share it with my family or my kids or whatever. You can't I'm not saying you're never gonna kill a big buck doing that, but if you I know guys who take this approach that I just described, they'll kill a big buck every single year because they got it figured out, they've controlled the controllables, and they're getting those deer to come through that property. Uh, you know, at a time, but they're only picking the right spots. It mm. sucks because I've been in stands. I get up there, wind's wrong. Got to get out of here. Why? The wind is wrong. Well, I'll just hunt anyway. No. If if that big buck smells me once, is he going to run for the next county? No, but he knows where I'm at. And now it's going to be really that much more difficult to hunt him. Sure. Yeah. That makes sense. Hmm. Yeah. That was, that, that, was away, Jed. that was awesome to listen to. It <laughs> kind of made me feel good that I'm, I'm <laughs> halfway on the right track. <laughs> yeah. But yeah, well, it's kind of neat. I was just thinking about my hunting property that I have permission to to hunt on and a lot of the similar thought process goes through my head so yeah, yeah that, well, well, that's kind of we'll, neat we'll have to have like I said we need to get Dan back on for episodes two three four five six of, of yeah maybe like I said we get closer to hunting season we could do Absolutely. like a whitetail special for a month or something because I've been yeah we've been over an hour here talking now so we'll have to wrap this up uh, but before we do sure Dan, we got to know if you had to pick one cartridge and one bullet to shoot for the rest of your life, what would you pick? It would be this one right here. It would be the American Whitetail. Oh, the, oh man. Ooh. Uh, it'd be the Precision Hunter 6.5 Creedmoor. Precision Hunter 6.5 Creedmoor. Yeah. Can't go wrong. Yeah, I've shot them both, but that thing is pretty darn. Yeah. It makes me look good. Yeah, it's got a match accurate it, bullet. It, it makes me look good. Terminal performance to spare at any practical range in a cartridge that's mild recoiling. And just inherently accurate by nature of its design. Yeah, it is. I mean, now I've shot the, the American Whitetail loads. I've shot those actually since, when did you guys come out with those? It was- uh, Oh, 2015. 2015. I shot those almost exclusively for, oh, I shot a bunch of nice Nebraska bucks with that one. But this oh. one I've shot, when, now this one came out, when again, the precision- 2015. Oh, they both came out at the same time. Uh, Excuse me. Whitetail might've been 14. This one came out yeah. earlier. Yeah. This one I've shot the last two, three seasons. And I, well, maybe it, it's a combination though, too. And uh, I think Mark Kaiser actually, it was something he did for us. Well, he was shooting the bullet. I got the bullets. I shot them. They were very accurate. But then I teamed it with my rifle and my scope. And I'm Welcome not, I'm, Sig. I'm not, yeah, yeah, they're freaking awesome. Um, I'm not the five or 600 yard guy, but yeah. I've made several 350 yard shots with that thing where I was supremely confident. Oh, yeah. And I'm not that way. Confidence kills. But I got that thing. Exactly. I got that thing. I got that gun locked down. I'm like, I can totally take that deer. Yep. And boom. And when you do that, it's just like an arrow. It's like, no, I'm not, I'm not changing. Yep. So yeah, I'd have, I'd have to pick the precision hunter. Awesome. All okay. right. Log that one down. Six, five Creedmoor precision hunter. A great choice, Dan. I got to commend you on that one. You can't right. go wrong with that combination. So 
Judd, any last questions for Dan while we got him here? No, I don't think so. I just uh, appreciated being the sponge here and taking it all <laughs> yeah, in. That's yeah, that's what was... I feel like. Yeah, Dan, can't thank you enough for coming on our podcast. And so for all the listeners out there that want to get engaged, you got Deer and Deer Hunting TV. You've got the Deer Talk Now podcast yep. available wherever podcasts are found. Uh, in social media, Deer and Deer Hunting. Social media, go to Pursuit Channel. Uh, starting right here at the end of June, third quarter starts. Uh, 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 come on. David, uh, Saturday Night Deer Camp on Pursuit, two-hour block, uh, anchored by the Deer and Deer Hunting TV show. Okay. Also, we have Modern Hunter. We've got, uh, we, we've got, we've got four TV shows. Uh, and then also on YouTube, uh, it's YouTube backslash DDH online. Okay. And you can watch Steve Bartell's Grown Big, Hunt em Big. We've got all sorts of, we've got like 25 or 3,000 videos up there that wow. people can watch. Excellent. Great resources all around. So people out there listening, jump onto that. Dan, Judd, thanks for the conversation. Thanks for having me. Guys, hopefully you enjoyed this educational podcast. I know I certainly did. Judd was the sponge here as well. Great resource. Can't thank Dan enough for coming on and for sharing his knowledge. I promise you guys we'll get you him back on the show. If you would, like, comment, subscribe. Please drop a comment. Uh, if you would, if you have questions, if you have questions for Dan, questions for us, hit us up at podcast at hornady.com, and we'll catch you on the next one.